Welcome to the case for a creator. Attention, our staff is too low. And when we talk about this topic of creation versus evolution, it's not an issue of faith versus science, but it's an issue of science versus science. Because in recent decades, there's been more and more scientific discovery that have led many scientists to question evolution for scientific reasons. Back in the early 2000s, there was a seven-part series on PBS on evolution, and it ended with the statement, all reputable scientists agree with evolution. And that ticked a lot of scientists off, so much so that there were actually 100 scientists from around the country that took out a two-page ad to go on public record as disagreeing with evolution for scientific reasons. And it wasn't as if you know, these scientists had their PhD from you know, an online JUCO or something, but these were scientists from prestigious schools like Cambridge, Stanford, Cornell, Yale, Rutgers, Chicago, Princeton, Purdue, Duke, and many others. It included professors from Yale Graduate School, MIT, Tulane, Rice, Emory, and a number of others. They wanted to go on public record as disagreeing with evolution because they didn't feel like the evidence supported it. Science Digest says this, scientists who utterly reject evolution may be one of our fastest growing controversial minorities. Many of the scientists supporting this position hold impressive credentials in science. Well, as we look at this topic, if you wanna take a deeper dive, um, I get a lot of material we'll look at today from this book, The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. There's a student edition uh, in the bookstore that you can get. But in the book, Lee Strobel, he shares about the day as a freshman in high school in Chicago. He remembers the day that he embraced evolution as his world perspective. It also happened to be the day that he embraced atheism because for him, like many, it was a package deal. Well, Lee went on to be an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and someone challenged Lee, Lee, have you ever examined the evidence for evolution for yourself? And he said, no. And so that's what this book is about, his own investigation. So there's a number of interviews that you'll uh, find in here. But if you find yourself growing up like Lee Strobel, evolution is all you ever heard, therefore it's all you've ever believed, I'm glad you're here to hear the other side of the argument. And as we talk about, as followers of Christ, those of us who follow Christ, the scripture tells us this, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so hopefully you'll walk away with some tools that will help you defend your faith in this area. So feel free to take notes, but don't kill yourself taking notes because if you want to get my notes in this slide uh, presentation, I've got an email I'm going to put up on the screen at the end and you can request that. Well, as we think about this topic, I want to encourage you not to land in the mushy middle. Theistic evolution, that's what I call the mushy middle, but it's the idea that God directs the evolutionary process. And the thinking can go like this, well, man, life is so complex, there had to be an intelligent designer involved, 
And so many smart scientists tell me evolution is facts. That must be true. So why don't we just say that God used evolution to create everything? And it sounds good on the surface, but the problem with theistic evolution is it doesn't agree with the evolutionary model, nor does it agree with the Bible. The evolutionary model says this, everything is a product of uncaring, unguided, unplanned, random forces of nature. You're an accident. We're all here by random forces of nature. Theistic evolution also doesn't agree with the Bible. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. We're going to look today at three areas of science that point strongly to a creator. Before we look at those three, I wanted to define a couple of terms that are important. And the first is microevolution. Microevolution is evolution within a species, also known as adaptation. This is something everybody agrees with and that we can observe. This is what Charles Darwin observed on his voyage through the Galapagos Islands. He observed finches. And one of the things he noticed is on some islands, the finches had short stubby beaks. On other islands, they had long slender beaks. Depending on what they had to eat, they adapted to their environment. Well, Charles Darwin said, if you can have a small amount of change over a short period of time, then you must be able to have a huge amount of change over a huge amount of time. And that's where he postulated macroevolution, which is evolution from one species to another. And, you know, this is the evolution that more and more scientists are coming out against, that the evidence doesn't show it. Everybody agrees with microevolution. God's given species the ability to adapt to their environment. And it's important to note this distinction because oftentimes evolutionists will point to microevolution as proof of macroevolution. I saw this all the time when I was in my pre-med classes in college, either in the textbook or from the professor. But they would say, hey, here's this moth that changes colors in order to adapt and survive in its environment. Hey, look at this bacteria, how it evolves and becomes resistant to antibiotics. Evolution is true. How could you possibly argue against it? You probably believe in a flat earth too, don't you? That's how the argument can go. It's a very effective debate technique, but there's a world of difference between microevolution and macroevolution. And so it's the macroevolution that more and more scientists or coming out against. Well, and it's also important as we you know, begin to recognize nobody can prove creation, nobody can prove evolution. We have to look at the, the data and draw conclusions. Hey, before we dive into our first area of science, I want you to turn to the person next to you and discuss this question. Why does it matter where someone lands on this topic about our origin, where we come from? Why does it matter if somebody lands on creation or evolution? Go ahead and discuss that, and I'll wrap this up in a second. You know, there's a lot we can say about why it matters, but one big reason it matters is we're either here by accident 
or we were created by God, for God, and there's a purpose that he has for our life. Those, those are going to send people on two different paths. Well, we're going to look at three areas of science, and the first is physics. Who set the dials? In the 1970s, Carl Sagan said this, there's nothing unusual about Earth. It's an average, unassuming rock that's spinning mindlessly around an unremarkable star in a run-of-the-mill galaxy. He's not easily impressed. Carl Sagan's point was, there's nothing special about Earth that makes life possible here because life is going to find a way. And based on this per perspective, Carl Sagan predicted that there were at least one million advanced civilizations in our galaxy alone, extraterrestrials. There was a movie that came out in the 1970s that reflected this perspective. You may remember the barroom scene, the Star Wars. Man, life is going to find a way. Well, I'm going to put up another quote. 40, 50 years after Carl Sagan said that. And it's from John O'Keefe, a NASA research scientist who's known as the godfather of astrogeology. But look how different his statement is after five decades of research and discovery. Only one planet in the universe is likely to bear intelligent life. He's not saying there isn't life out there, but what he is saying is life doesn't just happen. Actually, life is incredibly fragile. And there has to be a number of things that are just right for life to exist. So he's saying, if I'm betting money, I'm betting we're the only ones. And so as we think about some of the constants that have been set, that have to be set at just the right place for life to exist, check out what Patrick Glenn says. All of the seemingly arbitrary and unrelated constants in physics have one strange thing in common. These are precisely the settings that you have to have if you want the universe to produce life. He says they're, precise. they're precisely the settings you have to have. Well, how precise? Here are a few examples. If you took all of the possible settings for gravity in the universe from the zero gravity of empty space to the unimaginable force of gravity in a black hole, and you put all of those possible settings for the force of gravity on a dial with one inch increments, do you know how big this dial would have to be? The size of our solar system. That's how many possible settings for the force of gravity. Did you know that the dial has been set at the one place it could be set? Check out what Dr. Collins says. Of all the possible settings on the dial, it happens to be situated in the exact right fraction of an inch to make our universe capable of sustaining life. If you move that huge dial the size of our solar system a fraction of an inch to the left or to the right, life as we know it isn't possible. Either random forces of nature just happen to set that dial just right, or a designer did. The strong nuclear force that holds atoms together if it was decreased by only one part in 10,000 billion, 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 just that little, then boom, all we have in the universe is hydrogen and life isn't possible. And as we think about the 
laws of probability and we look at the precise nature of these settings, listen to what Harvard astronomy professor says. A common sense and satisfying interpretation of our world suggests the designing hand of a super intelligence. It's common sense, he says. If you're walking through the woods and you come up on an iPhone, you don't think, I wonder what random forces of nature put this together. Because there's precision that requires intelligence. And that's what they are saying. When you look at the precision that the universe, our solar system, the earth has to have for life to exist, it's requires this common sense to conclude that a designer did this. If we took just those first two examples, the laws of probability would be essentially zero that random forces of nature could have set the dials. And yet there are 30 such settings. The universe from all that we've observed is a very harsh place, uninhabitable for humans. It is only earth that has the specifics that allow for life. Did you know if the earth was a little bit bigger or a little smaller, 5%, life as we know it couldn't exist. We have a magnetic field around the earth that protects us from the sun's radiation. Most planets don't have that. Venus, our sister planet, doesn't have it. Life is impossible. Mars does have a magnetic field, but it's 100 times weaker than ours. Human life is impossible on Mars. Did you know that the earth is in just the right place in the solar system and in just the right place in our galaxy in order to give it a stable orbit. If we had the orbit of Venus, life wouldn't be possible because of the extremes, the negative 300 degrees plus the positive 400 degrees, life wouldn't be possible. When we examine the Earth's location, its size, its composition, its structures, its atmosphere, its temperatures, its internal dynamics, the many intricate cycles that are essential to life, the carbon cycle, the oxygen cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the sodium cycle, and so on, testify to the degree to which our planet is exquisitely and precisely designed. Did you know we have a five-part defense system against asteroids and comets? Most planets look like this. They're cratered out. But the first part of our defense system is Jupiter and Saturn. Because they're so big, many of the comets or asteroids that would hit the Earth get sucked into their orbit. Jupiter has 79 moons. Most of those are expected to have been comets or asteroids that got sucked into their orbit. Well, if it gets past Jupiter and Saturn, this is the surface of Mars. Notice craters within craters. Why is Mars cratered out, but we're not? And that's the closest planet to us. The largest crater on Mars is 1,400 miles wide, which is about the distance between the East Coast and the West Coast. That could do some damage. Well, if it gets past Mars, we have our moon. Notice, once again, craters within craters, the largest crater on the moon, 1,600 miles wide. If it gets past that, the Earth has an atmosphere that most comets and asteroids would burn up in. Most planets don't have that. If it gets past that, there's a 70% chance it's gonna land in water. 
Earth is incredibly unique. Listen to what MIT physics professor says. The exquisite order displayed by our scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. Notice she doesn't say that it suggests the divine. She says it calls for the divine. Hey, I want you to turn to the person next to you and discuss why would she say that these different settings, precise settings, call for the divine? Go ahead and discuss that, and I'll wrap this up. This evidence was so powerful that Patrick Lynn, who was, went to school, got his PhD from Harvard in physics, and is currently a professor of physics at Georgetown. He was a committed atheist and evolutionist, but when he started looking at this evidence, he actually concluded that it took more faith to be an atheist, to believe that random forces of nature could have set the dials. And he actually started believing in God and later started following Christ. Don't let an atheist tell you that they don't have faith. Everybody has faith in something, either the random forces of nature set these dials so incredibly precise on these 30 different constants or a God designed. And Patrick Lynn concluded it took much more faith to believe that random forces of nature set the dials. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The more we understand about the heavens and the earth and all that God has done, and it declares how incredible he is, that he spoke this into existence. Well, the second area of science that points to a creator is paleontology, the fossil record. The missing links are still missing. Several years ago, I was on an airplane flight and started a conversation with the guy next to me. We started talking about his spiritual life. And he said, man, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm an atheist. And I was like, man, how'd that happen? He goes, well, I started believing in evolution. And I was like, I've always had some questions about evolution. Maybe you can help me out. Man, if evolution is true, and it happens one mutation at a time, and scientists tell us that ape-like creatures evolved into humans, and it took about two million years, we have ape-like creatures today, and we have humans today, where are all those intermediate links in between the ape-like creature and the human? Where is that ape that's maybe a million years into his evolution and everything else in between? Because if evolution is true, and it's one mutation at a time continually, we should be able to observe it. And he was like, man, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, as I asked that question, the only response that, I got, that I've gotten is it happened so slow, you can't see it. Which didn't really make any sense to me. If it does to you, you can come up afterwards and explain it. But the, the scientists would say, hey, you gotta look at the fossil record. Because the theory is, we started off as um, a single cell organism, evolved into a fish, into a cold-blooded amphibian, into a warm-blooded mammal. But then something interesting happened because apparently mammals evolved back into the water because we have some mammals in the water. What are some of the mammals in the water? Yeah, whales, dolphins. And so the theory is, is that evolutionists tell us that a cattle-like creature evolved into a whale. Well, we've got lots of cattle-like creatures today. We've got lots of whales today. 
if evolution is true and it's one mutation at a time, continually going, where are all the intermediate links that we should be able to see? Well, evolutionists say, well, man, you got to look into the fossil record. Listen to what Charles Darwin says about the fossil record. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? It is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. You have to give Charles Darwin credit for being intellectually honest. He calls it a theory. And he says there's, there's a grave objection you can make against it. Where are the intermediate links? He says it should be packed full of intermediate links. Well, he was hopeful that future discoveries would vindicate his theory. And what he said is that we should see in the fossil record something called Darwin's tree. And Darwin's tree is, if you put the Earth's timeline on a football field, starting at one end zone and going to the other, one end zone being the beginning of time, modern day being the, uh, the other end zone, that Darwin said life started off simple and then it slowly evolved and became more and more complex until you see the complexity that we have today. But instead of finding Darwin's tree in the fossil record, we find something called the Cambrian explosion, when almost all plant and animal phyla exploded onto the scene. If you had nothing but the Bible to go on, would you expect to see a slow, gradual buildup or an explosion of life? Of course, an explosion of life. And that's what the fossil record shows, which is what was the opposite of what Charles Darwin thought. Well, he was, again, hopeful that future discoveries um, would vindicate his theory. But a hundred, over a hundred years after Darwin, look at what Harvard professor and paleontologist says about the fossil record. The fossil record is, is about as abrupt, with its abrupt transitions, offer no support for gradual change. All paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. Well, this, you know, most paleontologists won't admit what this professor admits is that the fossil record doesn't vindicate Darwin's theory. But again, they were hopeful and so on a regular basis, they will try to point out, hey, here's an, ex here's an example of a missing link. And so we're going to look at some of their major uh, candidates for missing links. But before we do, um, it's important to make note of what Professor Philip Johnson says. He's a law professor at UC Berkeley, and he wrote a book called Darwin on Trial. And he put Darwin and the theory of evolution on trial but look what he says. A confirming example or two for ancestor status is not enough to save a theory that claims a worldwide history of continual evolutionary transformation. What's his point? Evolution says, man, it's always happening, one mutation at a time. There should be more intermediate links than there are individual species themselves. So the fact that we're even arguing about one or two is an indictment against a theory they claims to have a worldwide history of continual evolution. Well, here are some of the 
missing link candidates. Archaeopteryx was supposedly the missing link between reptiles and birds. And it was promoted as such for decades in um, textbooks, but the scientific community is now in agreement that it's an extinct bird and not a missing link. Piltdown Dan stood in a museum for 40 years in London before it was discovered that it was a fraud. Somebody had mixed gorilla bones, chimp bones, and human bones in Piltdown Man. Nebraska Man, they, they found a tooth in Nebraska. They built a whole prehistoric man out of this tooth. This was the New York Times front page. Then it was discovered it was a pig's tooth. Whoops. They found these remains in Indonesia and noticed that there are no facial bones um, that were found. And so whatever this creature is going to look like, it's going to be 100% dependent on the artist's discretion. So what does it look like? It looks like kind of a mix between a human and an ape. A team of 19 evolutionists flew to Indonesia to examine this find because this, this was huge news. And that team of 19 evolutionists concluded it's 100% human and not a missing link. But that didn't stop Time Magazine years later from putting Java Man on its cover as proof of human evolution. There's a lot of fake news out there with this topic. Well, the most famous missing link is Lucy. Dr. Johansson found a skeleton, 40% uh, intact, which is a pretty major find. And originally, uh, Lucy was thought to have been a, an extinct ape. Um, she has the brain size of a gorilla, the jaws and teeth of a gorilla, but based on a knee joint that Dr. Johansson found that said it perhaps could have given Lucy the ability to walk upright. That's when she went from an extinct ape to the poster child of human evolution. And yet, several investigators, including the world-renowned Richard Leakey, who is probably the most famous paleontologist um, in history, he examined Lucy and he said this, that two or perhaps three species have been wrongly combined in Lucy. And yet, this is the poster child proving that you evolved from apes. Well, as we think about this, um, Michael Limenick makes a great point. He says this about paleontology. The only certainty in this data poor, you don't have much to go on. Imagination rich. Hey, you're going to have to fill in a lot of gaps. Is that there are plenty of surprises left to come. Well, here's an example of filling in the gaps. Uh, each of these models have the same facial structure of Lucy. But depending on the artist, they can make Lucy look like Planet of the Apes, look like a chimpanzee, second from the end. She's got the frat swoop going, looking very human-like. Data poor, imagination rich. The fossil record is, is about as discontinuous, again, this is from a evolutionist and an atheist. The fossil record is about as discontinuous as it was when Darwin was writing the origin. The intermediates have remained as elusive as ever. 
and their absence remains a century later one of the most striking characteristics of the fossil record. What's one of the most striking characteristics of the fossil record? The lack of, of missing links. They're still missing. Remember what Darwin said. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? It is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Well, not only are the missing links not there when it comes to paleontology, but there was a research uh, project with genetics that also they studied over 100,000 species and they were looking in the study of DNA, they were looking for intermediate links. Look what, this is the, the headline, this was published um, less than five years ago. Why did the overwhelming majority of species in existence today emerge at about the same time? Think about that. What Darwin expected to find in the fossil record was a slow, gradual buildup to complexity. But what we found was the Cambrian explosion. In genetics, what they were expecting to find was a slow, gradual buildup, but instead they found, man, all these species came into existence at about the same time. Listen to what the lead researcher says. This conclusion is very surprising, and I fought against it as hard as I could. Why would a researcher fight against the conclusions of his own research? Because it went against everything that he believed related to his evolutionary perspective. And look what else he says. The absence of in-between species is something that also perplexed Darwin. The missing links aren't there. It's not in the fossil record. It's not in the genetics record, which is even more precise. Hey, if somebody said to you that the fossil record that promotes is evidence for evolution, what would you say? Discuss that question. Somebody said the fossil record um, is evidence for evolution, what would you say? Go ahead and discuss that and I'll wrap this up. Hey, the last area of science that we're gonna look at is genetics. Who said or who wrote the program? You know, one of the challenges for evolutionists is to, to say how, how do you go from non-life to life? Because most people, when they talk about evolution, they're like, hey, we all started as a single cell organism, as if that's a really simple thing to start with. It's like, man, those are everywhere. You probably got one in your copy. But how do you go from non-life to life? Well, because an evolutionist has to believe that random forces of nature put that together. So let's look at what that would take. First, you have to have amino acids. To form one protein, you have to have hundreds of amino acids that are put in just the right sequence with the bond angles at just the right angle. If you get one out of sequence or one of the angles in the wrong place, then it won't work. Let's say for the sake of argument that random forces of nature man, cause these hundreds of amino acids to be in the right sequence, bond angles at the correct angle to form a protein. Do you know how many proteins there are in a single cell? A hundred million. So that doesn't just have to happen one time, but random forces of nature have to do that a hundred million times. Then, 
for the sake of argument, let's give it to them. Then you have to put those 100 million proteins together in just the right place to form a functioning cell. Obviously, the laws of probability would be zero. But for the sake of argument, let's give it to them. It would be equivalent to saying that a tornado, a random force of nature, hit an electronic factory and out popped a laptop. But for the sake of argument, let's give it to them. If you had a laptop that had all the hardware, would that laptop work? No, because you need software. It's not just having all the pieces. It's already um, goes against the laws of probability to believe that random forces of nature could have put together the hardware. But now you ought to believe that they also put together and wrote the software. DNA is that software program. The DNA molecule carries the genetic information necessary for the organization and functioning of most living cells and control the inheritance of characteristics in each of our cells. How many cells in the human body? Guesses? Trillion, good guess. 40 trillion, they tell us. DNA tells your cells how to make protein, for what purpose to make protein, where to ship the protein in the body. A cell is a highly technical manufacturing and shipping factory. And it has to have a program telling it what to do. Who wrote the program? Bill Gates says this about DNA. It is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we've ever devised. And that's actually a huge understatement. I'm gonna tell you guys something about DNA that you're gonna find hard to believe. In a teaspoon of DNA, just this little, there's enough memory storage for the genetic information of every organism that has ever existed. Every man, woman, and child, every dinosaur, every golden doodle, every butterfly, every organism that's ever existed. And there's still enough room left over for every book that's ever been written. That's how much memory storage is in that little of DNA. And then if we you know, think about, if we were walking down the beach and we saw patterns in the sand like this, we would conclude that this was random forces of nature because random forces of nature produce patterns. But if we kept walking down the beach and we found this, Clay loves Allison, we would not conclude that random forces of nature wrote this, right? We would conclude that Allison wrote this, no, or Clay. Maybe if Allison was feeling insecure, she wrote it. I know he loves me. But we would never in a million years try to argue that random forces of nature created these three words. Did you know that in one cell, there are millions and millions of pages of information, and it's not Clay Loves Allison kind of information, but it's highly technical engineering kind of information. Who wrote the program? Are random forces of nature writing programs that tell a cell 
what to do. And so when we talk about when the evolutionist says, well, hey, we all started off as a single cell organism, you have to make a massive, you have to make a lot of massive jumps to get there. To common sense, it does indeed appear absurd to propose that chance could have thrown together devices of such complexity. Anthony Flew was um, a professor at Reading University in Great Britain, and for 60 years, he wasn't just a evolutionist, but he was a proponent of evolution. He was kind of the Richard Dawkins of his day. He debated evolution and atheism. He actually debated C.S. Lewis back in the day. And so the scientific community was shocked when he wrote this book, There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Well, what was it that changed Anthony Flew's mind? It was DNA. What I think the DNA material has done is show that intelligence must have been involved. Again, to him, it took more faith to believe that random forces of nature could have written the program that is in DNA. Well, as we think about this topic, um, and I, I refer to that genetic research that was published five years ago, that genetic research also contradicts one of the pillars of Charles Darwin's writing. This was the this was the full um, title of his original book, The Origin of Species, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Charles Darwin taught that the different races of humans came from different ape-like creatures. And some races of humans were more favored and more highly evolved. And so you can imagine the, you know, and of course, his race was the most highly evolved. But this thinking is what led Hitler to promote his own race and try to help evolution out. Hey, this is about survival of the fittest, so let's destroy this race that he deemed unfavored so we can promote the favored race. Mao, Stalin, all had a foundation in atheism and evolution in the tens of millions that they killed. And, and yet, if you look at the genetics uh, that was published five years ago, look at this headline. New research has concluded that all humans are descendants of just one couple who lived 200,000 years ago. If you read the whole article, it says between 100 and 200,000 years ago. That the more that we learn in science, the more it catches up to what the Bible has been saying all along. That there's one race, the human race, there's different ethnicities, different people groups, but everybody's been created in the image of God with the same dignity. And as we you know, think about the ramifications of, hey, what we believe on this topic, it's really huge. The implications are massive. Well, hey, I want you to turn to our last discussion, and then I'm going to wrap us up. But which of these three areas of science do you feel like is the strongest evidence for the Creator and why? Which of these three areas of science that we looked at is the strongest for a creator and why? Go ahead and discuss that and I'll wrap us up. 
Okay. Hey, give me some shout outs. What? Uh, which of those three did you feel like was the strongest evidence that points to a creator? Okay, why why DNA? What was it about DNA that made it strong? Yeah, I just think it's crazy how like we obviously have a lot of variation and similarities. So not only do the ones that are all similar between us all have to be perfect to be sustainable, but the ones that are all variable also have to be good enough for to be different, but also like all of us combined. Yeah. The all the variables that go into it are massive. Good. Other thoughts? All things were created by him and for him. As we think about the implications of this, you know, WC made a, you know, great statement about, talking about you were created for a purpose. God created you. And he has a purpose for your life. And it begins by being rightly related to him through Jesus Christ. And just recognizing that I've been created for a purpose. And until I connect with the creator, I'm not going to find that purpose. I'm not going to find that fulfillment and satisfaction that comes with plugging into the purpose for which I've been created. So as we think about um, application... Remember, you were created for God and his purposes. And so if you've yet to give your life to Christ, man, that's the first step. If you are a follower of Christ, are you plugging in to Christ and his purposes for your life? Uh, the second is, man, share this workshop with someone. If you know they need to hear it, it can be a great opportunity. There's a lot of fake news out there on this topic. Um, and if you are interested in getting the notes um, and this PowerPoint, you can email that address. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, we do just want to just stop and just praise you, Lord, for your creation. Lord, it's incredible to think about that you spoke the world into existence. And Lord, the more we learn about it and the precision and all the things that had to be just right, that you hold it together by the word of your power. And Lord, we just give you the praise. For that, I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who's yet to, Lord, give their life to Christ, that they would make that decision, knowing that you are their loving creator and you have a purpose and a plan for their life. I just pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.